Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge. I'm Dan, and joining me in the studio is... Kadia Goba. So we are on our... Ooh, what is it now? I think it's our, our sixth Congressional Contenders Campaign episode. And obviously Rachel isn't here because our guest is Omar Vaid, who is actually employing Rachel right now as a communications director. So thank you for joining us, Kadia. Absolutely. Can you believe there's so many candidates? It's really weird. Like, have we ever had this many in Brooklyn? Even? I don't think for the congressional. We had a nine candidates for the city council oh, <laughs> race. Yeah, that's so this true. is becoming a habit for this area. <laughs> we know who the candidates are, right? We know yeah. there's two Republicans, we the incumbent it. and uh, Michael Grimm. <laughs> and then there are seven, right? Seven Se- Democratic, yes, seven candidates. Democratic candidates. And you guys have had on how many at We've this had- point? We've had, this is going to be our sixth, and then Mohan should be coming in right after Omar. Hey, hi, this is Dan. Sorry to interrupt, but we do have some breaking news that came out just a couple of minutes before this episode came out. So our candidate field is actually not seven anymore. It is now down to six. This morning, Mike DeSillis decided to withdraw his candidacy from the NY11 race, citing, quote, the uniqueness of the seven-way primary and early intervention of the DCCC into the race that had prevented him from running the campaign he wished to run. We wish Mike the absolute best in all of his future campaigns. And now, back to the episode. This is serious stuff. At the federal level, there's a lot going on. So with the president just recently passing the budget... Yeah, exactly. That's like a huge thing. And then the infrastructure bills that absolutely. are coming out. Which which absolutely impacts the transit desert in Staten Island. Oh, yeah. So we have four months left. And that's just for the that's primary. That's for the primary, correct. So we have petitioning happening in early March. And that goes a couple of weeks. Most, and then April, they have to file everything like really early April. So this is the chance, everyone. If you haven't listened to the other Congressional Contender Series episodes, go through all of them. We'll have Mohan out shortly after this. And who you're thinking of signing a petition for, because by the way, you can only sign, if you're a registered Dem, you can only sign one petition. And that goes to one candidate to get on that ballot. So this is your chance to kind of pick who, because a lot of times... It's whoever shows up at the door first, so they really blitz every single registered primary voter quick. Let's not forget about the demographics here, too, because we're up against Staten Island. So Brooklyn really has to show force in this. Yeah, it's also going to be easier to canvas here because we're definitely a little bit more dense. Absolutely. Bay Ridge, you're going to kind of be targeted to get a lot of these petitions out and... They bet that whoever's the first to show up is the person you signed for. We're hoping if you listen to this, you'll actually know kind of who you want to sign for and make the petitioning process a little bit fairer rather than something that the candidates themselves can kind of game by having a strong ground game early and just getting there first. This isn't about first. This is about who you prefer and want to be on the ballot. That's right. And then you get the chance to vote for them in a couple months. So without further ado, um, we'll welcome Omar Vaid. Thank you for having me. I know we've met in the past, but print is very different. (laughs) So I'd like to know who the real Omar is. Well, we're going to find out. I am... 
Omar Vaid, uh, my partner is Mary. I have two adorable rescue dogs that are half Chihuahua, half Dachshund. <laughs> and they are Lucas and Lucy. And they changed my life, those two. Let's see, I've lived in Brooklyn my entire adult life. So I don't know if that classifies me as a Brooklynite, but I'd like to think it does. <laughs> I'd say so. Let's see, I'm a union worker. I build movie sets and I'm not a politician. I have no um, allegiance to either party or any party ties or establishment ties. I'm a regular guy. I file my taxes as a mechanic. And I think it's time that regular people represent everyone, that we see in our congressional body scientists and teachers and people with diverse backgrounds, union workers. I think that it would be more interesting and maybe it would benefit our country. Why Congress? I believe right now on the federal level, right now people are paying attention and we talk about federal issues, especially like Janice versus AFSME, that that's a case up for the Supreme Court in about a week. Uh, it could end unions as we know them. The ability for unions to collect their dues is at hmm. stake and it's expected that Neil Gorsuch might be the deciding vote. It's a 40-year precedent. And so we're seeing on a federal level the undermining of many things across the board. You know, uh, Medicaid work requirements is an insult to yeah. disabled people. You know, the tax plan, labor issues. It's like there's, there's so many in every category. And I think myself, that's where I want to be is to, is to actually change things on the federal level. That's yeah. what I'm most passionate about. And this, this neighborhood in this district is so heavily union. Very union heavy. You can see it in the scrubs. You can see it in the Carhartts. You can see it in the tool bags. You can see it in... Let's not forget about the police officers and fire yes. department on, on Staten Island and, and Southern Brooklyn. Teachers. Absolutely. It's, a hu it's a, actually the largest uh, union worker concentration in all of New York City. And I, th I feel like we can say that about many things, like uh, Bay Ridge, the largest Arab American. Sri Lankan population on the North Shore. Largest. This district has the largest of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, this is a unique moment in history, in our time, where people are paying attention. We can do something. And I see it as myself and my identity and the, the people I've surrounded myself in my life are working people and union people. It was Teamsters when I was 24 years old, my first job in New York City who set me aside and said, kid, you need health care. You know, you need a pension. You, and I was like, I don't care about those things. I was 24. <laughs> and they're like, no, well, someday it's going to mean something. And I did end up passionately getting in with the union trades. And, yeah. and so there's an opportunity here for Staten Island and South Brooklyn together do something and build something really great. And I would like for us to be the leader of the new American labor movement for the country. Right here, it's the most natural place because historically, like my union is IATSE, the theatrical stage employees, Local One is here. Local One is on the Broadway shows. And that's, ah. that's the first union, that means, the very yeah. first one. And my local is 52. So it means that that many chapters later came mine, which is motion picture studio mechanics. But now there's thousands of Yahtzees. And when you talk about uh, our brothers in Local 3 are on strike, the electric workers for yeah. Spectrum, pull the plug on Spectrum. Uh, I pulled the plug as well. That was like, Spectrum actually came to our door and Mary opened the door and the guy didn't know that they were on strike who was trying to sell a Spectrum and we lectured him for about 30 minutes and he was into it too. Like, he's I like, think oh, fine, I should go on strike. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is though. It's that you created awareness, you know, even just person to person, even telling a worker. It's a horrible thing. Their workers have been on strike for over 300 days now. And they're being starved 
And the CEO was compensated 98 and I think a half million. So almost $100 million he made that year. And he's going against their contractual obligation for pension and welfare benefits. That's that's yeah. what they're arguing about. And it's like, you sign the contract. It's there. Like, what's the problem? Like, we're not asking for something new. We're just asking for what we're owed. And how could you have made $100 million that year and that this is a problem? You know, and it's just and then, of course, net neutrality, that was a give back to Spectrum so that they could you <laughs> I know, never that, even connected that. Yeah, that they could make even more money by clocking speeds or whatever. And then on top of that, that CEO who made the ninety eight and a half million, he was given a huge tax savings. Yeah. So he pays probably, what, 10 or 15 percent less in tax than he paid the previous year. So why is this guy doing so well? Why is he getting so many government kickbacks for his business and his personal finances? And the worker who, you know, does his job and does it well, why is it a problem to get what's contractually owed? You know, that's the problem with our country. Right here, this is where unions started here on the East Coast, you know, and Local 3, the electrical workers, that's that's the third chapter. You know, I, I think we contacted 400 unions to tell them, you know, who I am and why I'm running. And when you cycle through these and you go through the stevedores and you go through the steam pipe fitters, and I thought, you know, if elected Staten Island, why couldn't we have the American Labor Museum right here in Staten Island that people could Ooh. travel and visit to over the ferry and people would come from all over the country? There's no labor museum? Has to be. I, it would be the first, I, as far as I know. And not just a museum, but... Uh, something to celebrate our past, but to talk about our future and talk about automation and to talk about the worker's role in the future. Something I'm really worried about is Silicon Valley is a lot for us to be proud of, but they're the worst in terms of labor. They're the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. Like Tesla won't sign the UAW deal. So for all their great triumphs and, and these wonderful things, they're exploiting B1 visas to bring in Croatian workers and they, they won't sign the UAW deal. And it's just like, with Silicon Valley, with Uber, with Amazon, with all of them, they need a lesson in labor. They could visit the museum and, <laughs> and, and, and learn why do we want Teamsters driving your truck? Why do you want union workers doing the work? And it's because it's safer and because the American worker is the most hardworking and efficient in the world if just given an opportunity to do the work. For me, why am I running? It's um, how the office is used for a congressman. Is it really just going to D.C.? And voting on bills, because that's kind of boring. And I mean, it's a big part of it. But what about the daily representation that from your office and from your crew and from yourself and to show up for things and to show up when people are telling you there's a non-union job site, you know, that there's a construction site, that there's a big developer in town and he won't, this developer won't sign with the union trades. My thing is that, hey, let's go get the inflatable rat and take it there and I'll help you blow it up. I mean, I, that's, that it's who I am. I'll help you blow it up and let's lay out the table and let's lay out the eight union deals or 10 union deals for each local and let's get them to sign it together and let's make them proud and let's put a spotlight on them and put a little pressure and then make them sign. In my case, I won't take corporate money. I turn down developer money because I could never do that. Other candidates on the GOP side, especially, they can't do these things. So how can you be for affordable housing? How can you talk about unionizing and change things? You can't do that if your money is coming from the interests that, you know, are trying to buy something. The listeners of the show know that. Speaking about the listeners, I hate to backtrack, but the Janice 
versus AFSCME. You touched on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Why don't you explain to the listeners what exactly um, is the issue? Okay. It's a 40-year precedent that um, has been upheld until now. They want to make it optional for a union member to pay dues. And it's really controversial because that's how a union survives. And if you're non-union, why does it benefit you? Because your employer might feel like in the case of Kodak, they felt like they never wanted unions. So they treated their employees with with extra care and Mm -hmm. generosity and threw parties for them and gave bonuses because they were always afraid to unionize. So it benefits you no matter what. Unions are in danger because without the ability to collect dues, how would they exist? If you're benefiting from collective bargaining, it's only fair to pay your 2% in dues. It's not much. I mean, I was raised, if you didn't pay your dues, you couldn't pay any of your other bills. You know, that, like that was part of membership. It's not about choice. This is about thoroughly de-unionizing the country. We saw it in the Constitutional Convention in ConCon that here on the state level that came up. And it's coming from very far right-wing think tanks and funders that are just trying to destroy unions. I mean, uh, I, I know we're, we're local Bay Ridge, but if you've gone out to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the last couple of years, the Koch brothers, now on the board of directors for the Metropolitan, are definitely going to be trying to get union shop out of their museum <laughs> that they basically, you know, bought. That's their whole thing. Yeah. Like, that's the Koch brothers' whole MO. And for, like, New York, we're fortunate. That this is a really strong union state. And here in, in Staten Island, South Brooklyn, we're talking about the strongest part of it, of course. And these trades were passed down from father to daughter to son. And you hear about third, fourth generation of doing these trades. And these are our values. So what would you say to someone who would just be like, well, they're offering uh, these spectrum workers more money, more money in salary? Like, isn't that part of the deal? Well, we talked about healthcare. It goes back to healthcare. I mean, like for every union, union leaders struggle with the healthcare issue, the skyrocketing cost of healthcare. We don't see it because our employers pay for it, but it's there and it escalates every year. And our leaders try to keep the deductibles down and the insurance quality. But yeah, like to me, Medicare for all, it would really fraction off a lot of those costs and we would see some of that money in wage increases and in pension fund benefits. I mean, you can ask union leaders, they'll agree that every three years at the bargaining table, the reason you can't get wages and pension increases, whatever it is, the reason we give something up every contract, it's to throw everything into health insurance because it's skyrocketing. I mean, even if you're not in a union shop, when I was just, you know, working a standard cubicle job, every year they would change over what the health care was that our employer had. They would be like, all right, we swapped over from Aetna to this, to this, to this, because we're trying to figure out, you know, what's most cost effective for us. And, oh, we're going to start instituting HSAs. And you could see that our HR departments, instead of focusing on hiring and diversity and sexual harassment in the workplace and all Isn't of this. Is now doing paperwork for. Yeah. Like in unions, we tend to get good health care. But yeah, like a lot of the health care out there is like really low quality. I'm definitely for taking the profits out of the health insurance industry and all those types of things. Yeah, like definitely. What do you say about the criticisms about extended wait times or that the platform didn't work in, let's say, Vermont, or that Canadians come to the States because they're on a wait list and they can't get treated as quickly as they'd like to. So some of them have crossed the borders. That's So I work for myself. So I am a customer of the Affordable Care Act. While I would love affordable health care, I'd like a 
a solution that isn't going to balloon in the near future or isn't going to adversely impact me ultimately. Yes, someone who's wealthy in Canada can drive over the border and pay in the best hospital in America. Of course, think way back to the 1940s about Social Security. And it was very unpopular because it sounded crazy that you were going to give up a part of your salary so that later you would get a check and you would retire in dignity. And it sounds a little too good to be true. And you're what, everyone's going to get a check? I don't believe it. And it was incredibly controversial. And I think that's the best comparison to this issue with healthcare because it's a radically different system than we're used to. You know, Social Security is not perfect by any means, but it does do what it set out to do. When we talk about Medicare for all, I think that it's not something that can be implemented today or tomorrow, but the health care of 9 million children is being dangled like a bargaining chip. Disabled people who have from their doctor confirmation that they can't work, Medicaid takes care of them, it's rightful, and it, it doesn't cost us much in our budget. And that's under immediate threat. The house is on fire. Right now, like today, we can't ever let this kind of stuff happen again. Children's health care like Medicaid work requirements for disabled people, like our veterans need to be protected. And I'm actually for when the house isn't on fire, strengthening, of course, the Affordable Care Act and improving it, going ahead and giving our veterans access, in addition to what they have, to Medicare. That's a great way to give them more options and more doctors. and, And I think over time, we focus on ways to bring people in slowly, that it's not overnight, the change. So the real question is, the 25 or 35-year-old who never gets sick. So if someone didn't get sick, there's money there. You know, as long as there's a lobbyist, there's someone who's going to want to protect that income. That's the profit we need for the general system. You know, it's, it's that money of these people who don't get sick, who are 25 years old. So how do you fund Medicare ultimately? It's like Social Security. The employer pays like 4%, you know, and then you pay 1%, and that's 5%. And that's about what it costs, about 5%. And then in prescription pills, I think- We should talk about that and segue into that whole opioid issue. Yeah, no, and there's an opioid crisis in Staten Island. It's, we talk about Staten Island being the highest concentration of union workers. Well, sadly, there's an opioid crisis that is of the highest magnitude. In- Which we did get funding for. Yeah. Yes, there was $6 billion. $6 billion. I'm very suspicious about where that money- will go and how it will be used. And I, I, I'm very uh, against this drug Vivitrol, that, the, that they, the Vivitrol paid off people on Capitol Hill to push an ineffective cure. I mean, I have some issues with that, but it's a good start. When you say you're suspicious, what do you mean? I'm, I'm just worried about people trying to cash in and make money on the opioid crisis. It becomes a business now overnight to treat people. And I think that, again, it's like removing these profit margins in, yeah. in you know, what could be profiteering and it's nothing new like go back to what methadone is methadone Absolutely. is it's about profiteering exactly i mean you have methadone clinics and replacement therapy in general their focus is to make sure that people just keep needing the replacement drug there is no incentive to get people clean these are companies getting tax exemptions for keeping people addicted and that's not to say that replacement therapy is bad it's not but there's a profit motive that undercuts the purpose of the treatment Of course, I'm challenging the incumbent, Dan Donovan, and he comes from being a DA, so he's a law and order man. He doesn't get that there's a a larger thing than just locking people up. And he he goes after aggressively illegal fentanyl. And it it is a problem. I'm not going to delegitimize it. But it's only one of 10 problems. 
And he he only focuses on the end one, which is that there's like illegal fentanyl, you know, on the streets. And that's where these people are dying. Well, I have a different take on this because I I just actually talk to people, you know, I talk to doctors, you know, I talk to people who have fallen victim families. I talk to everyone I can get a hold of. And of course, experts, God forbid you talk to experts <laughs> or, or in the Those are important. administration, God forbid you talk to a scientist Ooh, right? or a doctor. I always wonder who their consultants are. Seriously. Well, like, Consult with a doctor if you want to apply to run for Congress. But there's there's people on Capitol Hill that they're, a lot of their stuff is written by lobbyists. That's so, my point. No, so that they can hire workers to do, they can only hire so much staff, they can do something else because the lobbyists will take care of all the, the fancy writing for us, right? So here's the thing, like one in 10 of us, one in 10 of any of us that goes in, God forbid we have serious pain, we have a car accident or a fall or something happens to us that causes real serious pain and we go into a doctor and we were given medicine. One in 10 of us will come out addicted to painkillers. I mean, now doctors and nurses have done really well curbing the amount of prescriptions. They used to give them out in higher doses and things. But it starts out right here with like the pharmaceutical industry. The person who was nominated to be the drug czar had to step down, Marino, because he was an actual pharmaceutical lobbyist who tried to undermine the DEA's ability to bust pharmaceutical companies. In West Virginia, there was a small town of 400 people, and over 800,000 opioids moved through the pharmacy in that town. And where did they go? And that place has an opioid epidemic in, in West Virginia. Yeah. So the pharmaceutical industry, they really kicked this thing off by dumping pills all over our streets. And then scientifically, there's ways we can invest in using blood tests to find out how much pain a person is really in. That you don't ask like one to ten how much pain. Oh you yeah, in. that little smiley scale. I mean, is the answer not incorporating pain? Well, like when someone does fall prey, you know that addiction has started. Do we have re- pain rehabilitation that's cost effective that people can afford? We don't, and then they stay take painkillers because they can't afford to even see a physical therapist. You know, so like we can do better, take care of our own you know, and invest the money and things like that and counseling. And, and that's, I think, at the very end, the tragic end ends with people searching for fentanyl on the street. And Donovan's worried about the end, the very end when someone is looking out of desperation for drugs on the street. He's worried about that. I'm worried about everything. I'll take down the pharmaceutical industry. I don't care. You know, if they're in the way, they have to just go. tackle them in the halls of Congress. <laughs> they just all have to go. They're, they're, they're getting in our way. Like someone who has chronic rheumatoid arthritis and needs two shots a year, and you talk to people about that they budget their whole year around paying for these two shots. Think about if every time you left the house, you were worried if you could pay for your $6,000 a year shots that you you need to live. Everything you do, buying Christmas presents, buying birthday presents, and that medicine probably costs just a couple of bucks to make. And you know, like the thing that irks me the most is that we taxpayers... We pay for life-saving cures. We pay to create these these cures. And then after they're approved in the FDA, it's given almost for free to the big pharmaceutical companies, and then they turn around and gouge us. And that's not fair. We own a part of that drug. We should have a say in its actual marketing and its price. I think social media was created to call people out. And if, and if, if <laughs> I use... It's definitely being used that way. <laughs> I use my office to call... So, you know, I do a video and we call you out. All of a sudden, 
things are going to change. And that's that's what I talk about with social media is to amplify messages. That that I'm just a regular guy, but I can amplify your voice and everybody will see it. That's how you learn what to what to carry in your heart wherever you go. Like you hear that a constituent went in with bad pain, you know, and was afraid of addiction already and was asking their doctor and being prescribed non-addictive painkillers, which are very expensive, and to find out that United Healthcare doesn't cover it, that it's too expensive, it's not in your plan, you know, you have to pay out of pocket, and to hear the price and then to say, well, United Healthcare will cover morphine. Morphine is cheap and highly addictive, but it works. Our job as an insurance company is to make money and to get you a painkiller, and it's 50 bucks, and the other one's 500. And we didn't say that you need a non-addictive you know, addictive painkiller. That's your problem. I'm challenging someone who is a law and order person who just thinks about locking people up and busting people. And that's like... You are very vocal on Twitter. If you're elected, how would you reach across the aisle to those people that you've I, been bashing? <laughs> no, but I, that's... I, you know what? Look at my Twitter. Go on my Twitter. And you know what you're going to see? A new Omar. <laughs> you're going to see an Omar From today. You're going to go to my Twitter, look at my last 20 tweets. You're going to see an Omar that it wants to include everybody because at the end of the day, we're all sick of burying our kids. We've had discussions about Black Lives Matter. At the end of the day, we're all just sick of burying our kids. And in the South Shore with the opioids, it's the same thing. What happened with the school shooting? We're not interested in parties. Parties are, are part of the problem and Think of the person individually, and not if I have an R or D next to my name. I contacted on Twitter the Wagner Republicans, and I said, can I come and attend or speak and be a part of your club? Because if elected, I will serve you too. You know, And I hear all this stuff about people kneeling to the flag and standing to the flag. And to me, what I'm really upset about is I went to go buy an American flag for my office. I used to decorate movie sets. I wanted a beautiful cloth American flag with gold fringe and Gravesend flag here in the district. I found a local vendor who does flags. He said, you can't get one that's made in America. You can only get a nylon one. It's a real cloth American flag from your childhood. You can't buy one that's made in America. So to me, like, that's a problem. And I, I don't care what party you're in. That's a disrespect to the American flag that I can't get an American one. And before we talk about kneeling and standing... Let's talk about economic problems like that. There's a really heartbreaking story where factory workers that Trump said he would protect as a campaign promise. But if you wonder where anti-immigrant sentiment comes from, there is a definite connection between labor and immigration. It's undeniable. Mm. And for these factory workers to see that their factory was being sent to Mexico, but to see the Mexican workers were brought in to be trained by them. And they were offered a two-week severance only if they trained the person from Mexico who would do their job in Mexico. It was like adding insult to injury. And of course, they walk away with anti-immigrant feelings and and all these feelings about trade wars. Like Dunlap Zipper is the last zipper company in the country that makes American zippers, and it's closing. It's in Tennessee. And Bob Corker did nothing for them. So there it is, the last zipper. It's gone unless we save it. I think it's still important, however, to point out that the union movement in the 20th century It had a spotty record on civil rights and racism. And yeah, the AFL-CIO and a lot of others were really among the first to integrate. um, Because seriously, how could you not in industries like steel? But so yeah, they were major allies, but a lot of others weren't. And 
even in the ones that were allies, it didn't mean that blacks had equal power in union administration or that they weren't segregated by their position on the line or that they weren't sexist as hell. I mean, women, especially black women, were treated horribly. And specifically, I mean, I'm referring to the um, revolutionary union movement in Detroit, DRUM. Uh, But on top of that, there's also a long, nasty history of anti-immigrant sentiment that goes hand-in-hand with unions, and that's really dangerous. Unions very much supported the Chinese Exclusion Act. They wanted it expanded. Um, There's a really dark side to protectionism that you kind of briefly touched on earlier. I mean, if we're going to have a union museum, we'll have to acknowledge that. But what's hopeful for me is it doesn't mean that when the museum gets into the 21st century and starts talking about that history, that we can't atone for those mistakes. I mean, just think about today. The New York Teamsters are becoming a sanctuary union, which is super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. My my father came here from Pakistan on a student visa, and when it ran out, there there isn't a real path to citizenship in this country. There isn't one. And he was undocumented for some years, and then when he did finally become a citizen, the first thing he got was a draft card to go to Vietnam, which is like he was like, "Wow, <laughs> I really am an American." <laughs> And he didn't. His number didn't come up. It was the end of the war, but he got a, a good union job in the auto industry in Michigan, and suddenly he was middle class. Yeah. And I mean, to think like that's something worth saving and worth fighting for. We talk about NAFTA, and we talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We talk about these big trade deals, but there's always going to be countries that dump steel on the market or dump solar panels. There's always going to be someone a rogue. By the time they react, it's too late. You know, like the tool and die maker in America has already been decimated. The last company to make something is gone. So protectionism to me is the only way that, I mean, we have the data from the auto industry and without it, I don't think we would still make cars if we didn't choose to protect them. So we can go through and pick and choose what we want to save. Of course, they can still always be imports and there can always be trade deals, but we can choose if we want a cloth American flag to be made here in Staten Island, we could do that today. And automation is so dangerous because, I mean, automation is already here. Like American factories produce more than they ever have, but with the fewest workers. Again, like we talk about standing up to lobbyists, we're going to have to stand up to Silicon Valley too. You know, like cross-country trucks, like semi-trailers are going to be autonomous. Oh, yeah. They're going to drive themselves. So to me, as a representative, I will make sure that a worker still has to be in that vehicle. One Teamster to watch the computer and the other team started to watch the road, you know, like let it, let it be too. It's that kind of protectionism. I mean, people have to work. Part of the election cycle was about that. People feeling like the work had gone away and it dried up. I, I wonder if the border wall, for some people psychologically, if it was the idea of their factory lifting up and going to Mexico, and if that wall symbolically could keep that factory here you know, from floating over. I wonder if sometimes... I haven't heard that argument, but that's a good one. (laughs) They're going to have to build it a little taller. It's just something that I think about. We talk about nativism, but we also talk about isolationism, that isolating ourselves by building a wall, because we know that that wall won't work because he's trying to reduce known border control methods that do work. So that wall's, we know that wall's not going to work, but what does it symbolize, building a wall? People are sick of the gridlock of the party bickering, you know, and all of the divisiveness. I feel like we've just been in a deadlock. We're going on year 10. 
<laughs> yeah. Seriously, for being in a congressional deadlock, and it's annoying, and nothing is getting done. And, and the seat that I'm challenging Donovan for, I feel like that that seat, it serves a very narrow group of people very well, I believe. But what about everybody else? When Grimm, who claims to be, serve everyone, he was blocking people. He was blocking people on his Twitter, and I, I exposed him. A guy named Frank, who lives in Diker and works in Bay Ridge, lives and works in the district, asked him a question about his past, and he blocked him. That's a, a real constituent, a real person. How can you intend to serve everyone if they ask you a question, you block them? That means that you serve them only if they play by your rules. Yeah. And that's not fair. I mean, I mean, well, let's talk about like the real shame of that. Like, I'm going to break you like a little boy threatening to throw a journalist over a banister. One of the real shames of that isn't like, you know, the violence or the threats. It was the fact that what prompted that response from Grimm? It was a question. It was a legitimate question. He could have just left. He could have just walked Frank, off. I tell you, Frank lives and works in the district. He asked a question about his past. And I, I saw the question and it was it was totally like a, just a normal, wasn't offensive. It was a question. And he blocked him. And he blocked thousands of my followers. He blocked so many of my followers that if I quote his tweet, my followers can't see it. It's just like a, you know, a no yeah. display tweet. And I'm like, my God, like he blocked everybody. It was like a massacre. And I want that office and I want my chance. I want my first chance so that we can do these great things, these three great things and create these good union jobs and improve our public schools and improve our health care. And you just mentioned something that I don't think we actually touched on yet, which is public schools. I think issue number one in New York 11 is the overcrowding of schools. And I think that there's a federal thing we can do here is I can demand federal funding to build new schools. I talked to teachers here in the district at Fort Hamilton High told me when it's break, he doesn't even have a place to sit. It's so overcrowded. And he said that he feels like there's no elbow room. There's no place to move. And he said, I think about it all day about overcrowding. And the school was made for just over 2,000 students. And there's about 5,000 students in that school. So how do you do that? Well, you gut all of those amazing extracurricular activities you remember so fondly of in your childhood. And you got those rooms because they're underutilized. So mechanics and home ec and... This gym. What about gym? Do they still have gym? <laughs> but we look back on our childhoods and like drama, there were art programs, there was... Chorus. There, yeah, there was... There well, we go. that's art. <laughs> and there was a wood shop, mechanics courses. I took weight training, which is kind of funny if you looked at me physically. And I took that, weight training too, which is even see, funnier. You, you See, you and I are, are like, you know, these scrawny guys, but see, that's what's so cool about it is that we took things that took us out of our element yeah. a little bit. And I took drafting classes for fun and I took three years of drafting. And my first job in New York City was not because of college. It was because I had drafting experience and I, I got in the art department of a movie because they said, well, if you know drafting, everyone does drafting in here. And I got my foot in the door. And that was through public education. So all those amazing classes we look back on, we need that space back. And we need to build more schools. Where did you go to school? Jupiter, Florida. Jupiter, Florida. Is that where you're from? I grew up in, um, in Palm Beach County in Illinois before that. Okay. Yeah, Midwesterner. But this, uh, the teacher here in Fort Hamilton High went, went to school in Connecticut. And we were talking about, it doesn't matter where you went. We talk about what it was like 10 or 20 years ago. And to think today these rooms are gutted out and they just dump more desks in just to teach the oh, core. Yeah. I'm for 
powerful and purposeful public education. Like it should be really great. Then I look at Donovan. I go, well, okay, let's look at how the seat is being utilized right now. Like he, okay, with fentanyl, you know, he was only worried about the end goal and not the other 10 issues. Let's look at him in schools. And I'm like, why isn't he addressed overcrowding in Staten Island? Schools are 400% overcrowded sometimes. In the Brooklyn side, over 200%. I said, let's talk about this. It's because he probably advocates for private schools. The tax plan benefits people who go to parochial schools or whatever. Again, that narrow group of constituents that you're thinking about. But if all the public schools were great, everyone would use them. With me, it's protectionism. With them, it's privatization. It's all privatization. We don't need schools. There can just be private schools. Betsy DeVos, of course, is all like pushing for there not even to be public schools. Like this shouldn't exist. This is what we're up against. These are our values. And we're going to use that office differently. Like Justin, one of his core issues was I'm going to build a school. His promise, build a school. I remember I I read something about Ross thinking about overcrowding. And that's too. That's the state, you know, Justin, you know, and then myself. I'll help you. All three of us will work on this one. You know, I will get federal funding to get you schools. How do you respond to people who are like, well, how do you find the space? I mean, I think you already know. I mean, eminent domain, pick a site. Using eminent domain for what it's actually supposed to be used for? (laughs) I know your heart probably fluttered there because I've I've walked with you on the street and we've passed a car dealership. And you know what? In Staten Island, a young man pointed and said, see that BJ's Wholesale Club? There's a Costco down the street. That could have been a school. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and in Brooklyn, there's a place somewhere. We can find one. We We can put a school somewhere. And it's like... You're right. And that's what eminent domain was made for. Yeah. you. A lot of people, when they hear the term, they hear eminent domain and then think maybe back to uh, the Barclay Center, which used eminent domain to eliminate tons of housing in downtown Brooklyn mm, I remember. to build an arena that's now the Barclay Center. Eminent domain is there for the city and the state and the federal government to say, this land is best used in the public interest because we need it and there is no other place to put it. Which falls under housing and schools. You build more housing, you build more schools, and you take away things that are narrow and only benefit a very small constituency because your argument is what we're going to replace it with benefits more people, more greatly, more of the time. There's people who are incredibly wealthy in other countries who buy homes here just for fun and they don't live in them sometimes. I mean, like, especially in in the city. And I mean, it's a problem that these vacant little places, people who come to the city who are middle class and want to work and contribute to our city and pay taxes, they're more valuable than someone who wants, you know, a trophy apartment that sits empty. This is like Paul Manafort. Yeah. He had a dozen homes sprinkled throughout Brooklyn and they were all vacant. How do you feel about Airbnb since you're such a staunch supporter of local unions? You know, I think Airbnb's original idea was really kind of innocent of like, oh, someone's got a room and whatever. But like we saw in Brooklyn, it became a big money business. They thought they were hotel owners. I feel like now the city got a handle on it. Finally, I approve that where if you even put up an ad and it's, it's not legal. You get hit with a huge fine. And I know people who have rushed to sell all their Airbnb empires off. Mm. I saw people dumping all their apartments that they were using as illegal hotels, immediately liquidated. Wow. Sold them and sold them. In my building, someone did that. 
But the problem was, how did they get away with it so long? Talk about Uber and taxi and livery cab. Like those medallions were like, there was a really great article that came out recently. I'll link it in the show notes, but a million bucks for a medallion at one point. And how essential though, those medallions were bringing people up into the middle class. Again, you're talking about like a protected job. It was gated in the same way that in London, you're supposed to take like this very specific exam, like where is this restaurant what is this street name you have to know all of it so that you are skilled enough to get people where they need to go fast and the cheapest like our hack license here yeah it was it was like that on steroids but... oh yeah the british cab drivers could get you anywhere yeah and in new york they were pretty good too for yeah. a while. like now oh my god now the ai maps inside of them and and you talk about truckers and how truckers now have but like uber, gps that are watching them at all times in, in uber's case i mean part of the part one reason why this, there's many reasons but one reason the ceo travis stepped down is he got caught having okayed illegal software to defy law enforcement there was that other issue too there was others too <laughs> oh, no, no, i don't know one, one there are a couple one of, of. Yeah, like, and also, like, I have this problem where people who drive Ubers, unfortunately, have to pay two social security contributions because Uber lists you as a business owner. You're not, a, um, you're not an employee of Uber, so you have to pay both contributions, 15%. It's crazy. They dumped all these Ubers, so many thousands of them, on New York City, and it just caused such a glut of traffic. That the traffic, I feel like, got so much worse after the Ubers came in. What about congestion pricing? I like the idea of congestion pricing. With Bloomberg, we almost got it. And I agreed with those who voiced the concern. was the promise that the money went to the MTA. And he just would not give that to us. If you're going to collect that money, you should go to mass transit. So you prefer that over the mayor's tax the rich? Because those are the two being tabled. That one I'm worried about because the problem is, uh, and Bloomberg brought this point up too, is that wealthy people can transport themselves away and... If we, you know, there's, there's something to be Jump said. Jump in a helicopter. Well, maybe we can get their apartments what? then. <laughs> yeah, no, Ooh, I'd like that. <laughs> I feel for friends that I know in the building trades who have no choice but to transport tools to work. I mean, you're moved around all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you live in Staten Island, you might have to drive into Queens or in the Bronx. And you know what? You don't have a choice. You have to drive in because you start work at 4, 5, 6 a.m. So you can't take mass transit. No, you can't. Because not only... Would you not be able to get to work at 6 or 7 a.m. through mass transit, especially from Staten Island to like Queens or something? But the issue of transporting your tools that you need to have in your car. So I think like the one thing we could do is if you're working in a trade and you have tools for a job site, I think you should be exempt from any sort of congestion pricing. But someone coming in from New Jersey with a briefcase that could have parked and taken the train into Midtown to their office and could have showed up. At 10 a.m. and no one cares if you're early or late, I think that person should have to pay congestion taxing. There's a few occupations I think that would fall under that realm Yeah, if that's going to be the case. Also, we got to say, like, congestion pricing happens for lower Manhattan, basically. Right, Um, not Midtown. Staten Island as, you know, a carpenter or something, and you're going out to Queens, you're not hitting that congestion pricing, but... One of the things that I will defend in terms of congestion pricing, specifically for the island, look at what happened in Amsterdam. It's covered with canals and locks and waterways. And what does it have that Staten Island also has a problem with is bridges totally bottlenecking 
all the traffic. That was a problem with Amsterdam where all these trucks, all of these th- this through traffic was totally jamming up mm. all of the bottlenecks and keeping people from moving out of these areas. They instituted a minor like it was a it was again it was a buck. And one of the cool things about traffic is that it's not a linear ratio. You can get rid of like 5 to 10% of cars and traffic will speed up by 20, mm. 30, 40, 50%. Mm. It's not a linear thing. You take out a small amount and traffic speeds up. It's crazy. And this is stuff that like experts have been talking about for years and years and years and years. But for New York 11, the scariest one is the Gateway Tunnel. I mean, we were promised 50-50 federal funding, mm. you know, and city funding or state for the new Gateway Tunnel. And Amtrak has admitted that the 106-year-old gateway tunnel from New Jersey to Midtown can collapse at any moment. It's a safety concern, of course, for anyone who travels through it. But God forbid if it collapsed and what would happen to the Verrazano Bridge? I mean, everyone, because now everyone who does come in from New Jersey with a briefcase would have to drive their car over the Verrazano. And I mean, they would have no other choice to get to work. And then it's like not even about congestion pricing. It's that you wouldn't be able to cross the Verrazano and it would come right in, a, in South Brooklyn. Yeah. And so I look at Donovan and there's no action. He's actually saying we should take the deal of zero funding, that we should take that bad deal because it makes him look good in some sense, which I don't even understand. And I think he's a sellout. I think we were offered 50-50. He should stand up for that. And, you know, to bring it back to South Brooklyn, if you don't necessarily commute over the Verrazano, the local streets are kind of clogged up. I encourage you to, like, open up a Waze app or, like, check Google Maps and see, is the Belt Parkway currently clogged right now? Because you better believe that these automated navigation systems Mm -hmm. are saying, oh, Belt's clogged. There's an off-ramp right here in Bay Ridge. There's an off-ramp right here in Bensonhurst. Cut through Bay Ridge. Staten Island's commute overflows into our community constantly. I'm challenging Donovan or Grimm, who voted in favor of a $78 billion border wall, it's the same budget that would get us that gateway tunnel. It's an infrastructure budget. You know, that, that they, they're not looking out for Staten Island and Brooklyn. They're looking out for their party's interests. Yeah. We didn't, we're not interested in parties. We're interested in solving these real problems that affect everybody. God forbid you talk about where the seawall for the South Shore is, and you start saying like, oh, well, you know, the South Shore is where their like core constituency is. They haven't even been able to build the seawall to protect them against the next Sandy. Even the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers haven't been able Which to start. the Army Corps of Engineers budget has been cut by 20%. That was news of last week. Donovan, <laughs> you said you would build this. <laughs> it was like one of your only things. You were like, yeah, I'm going to at least do that. Am- that makes Amtra- sense. Amtrak's budget was cut by half, 50%. From one point two trillion to I think like just five hundred and fifty billion. Arts funding, eighty yeah. percent. And you know what? Um, squeaky wheel gets the grease. <laughs> they say, and so we I, we want to be that squeaky wheel. You know, I, we were in Staten Island, and the hosts were throwing a party for us. Mm. And he said, "Oh, you know this thing, the stairs down there. You know, I know it's not really you, but the stairs down there. I wish you could fix them." And I said, "Of course, consider it done, just because it's a problem right here. You're telling me about." Nothing is beyond or above me or below me. Because you know what? That's what you want is all people to participate in government, to join me and participate. And yeah, not about parties or whatever, just to participate and what we can fix and what can change and what the problems are. Well, Omar, thank you for coming. 
Thank you for it having me. It was a me. pleasure. Kadia, thanks so much for also stepping in and, Absolutely. you know, showing showing the amateur journalists how a professional does it. Oh, please. <laughs> and just, um, you know, help us with petitioning. I'd love to meet you. Come to my office. DM oh. me. Call me. Where, where would people find out more about you? We are. That's important. Go. Visit um, Join Team Omar. You can go to omarvaid.com, O-M-A-R-V-A-I-D, and there's a, you can sign up to volunteer. You can DM me. You can call me. You can come to our offices. We're really easy to get a hold of. I have a Facebook group. There's so many ways. All right. He's very active on Twitter. That's very true. much so. Very true. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's our show for the day. I'd like to give a big thanks to Omar, but also especially to Kadia for stepping up and being such an awesome guest host. You can follow her on Twitter at at Goba. That's K-A-D-I-A-G-O-B-A. Support our local journalists, folks. They are truly putting in the work to make our neighborhood a better and more informed place. A few more final notes. Definitely keep track of Janice versus AFSME. The decision will be handed down very, very soon. And either way, it'll be one of the most important decisions the court will have handed down in this presidency so far. Also, All of the candidates will be revving up their petitioning crews for a start date of the 6th of March. We covered petitioning at the top of the episode, but in addition to knowing who you want to sign for, we encourage anyone who has been moved by any of the candidates so far to join in and support the people that they care about. Take it from Rachel. You need to get involved if we're going to have a chance not only for this election, but for the others this year and beyond. We also have Maliotakis and Golden defending their seats this year. Volunteer in a political campaign. Apply for a paid position. Get experience. Get your hands dirty. Everybody has to start someplace. And who knows, maybe in a few years, we'll be interviewing you. And if partisan politics isn't your thing, hold candidates accountable. Use these interviews as a jumping-off point to ask hard questions, make inferences, and get familiar with the field so we can hold each one of them to the fire. Candidates are important, but nowhere near as important as us. With that, be sure to follow along and subscribe to Radio Free Bay Ridge on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a bunch of handy subscribe links on our website at RadioFreeBayRidge.org, where you can also find show notes and links and tons of other goodies. And of course, for snippy one-liners and timely news and facts about Bay Ridge, check us out on Facebook or Twitter at at RadioFreeBR. And also, if you haven't already, check out our expanding Radio Free Network with our sister podcast, Radio Free South Bronx. Our next episodes will be our final Congressional Contenders episode with Radhakrishna Mohan. And after that, a roundtable wrap-up analyzing the entire Democratic field, and we'll fill in some of the progressive issues our candidates may not have addressed this time around. Until next time, stay free, Bay Ridge. (laughs) 